But let me say again, we live in one America, the United States of America. Whether we're white or black, rich or poor, employed or unemployed, disabled or able-bodied, urban or suburban, this is one America. And as long as we understand it's one America, we're going to move ahead in America. And we're going to be a greater nation than we are today. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Welcome to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold. An historic edition of Flyover Country, just about two months in to this podcast, it's the first one without Scott Jennings. Scott, uh, unable to make it uh, today, but Jared Crawford is here, Kevin Grout, and I am the, again, aforementioned Joe Arnold. Hey, old guys. Hey, Joe. Joe, good to see you. We are, in fact, the flyover country contingent. We have a, a healthy stable of people here in the middle of the country who are ready, willing, and able to step in and to represent these these various voices and not always in agreement. That's one thing I was thinking about guys is that it's flyover country, but at the same time, this is, we're still a diverse lot here. The three of us represent different interests and, and, and thought processes and dare I say generations. And, uh, <laughs> you can say it. I wouldn't cause that would be rude. <laughs> moment ago, of course, uh, hearing about uh, uh, Bob Dole, the, the late Bob Dole who uh, passed away this past year, of course, the former, uh, Senate uh, leader, Republican leader uh, for for a, for many years, uh, former presidential candidate, the 1996 uh, nominee for the Republican Party. And it's interesting, guys, how uh, it takes someone to retire or die to be appreciated uh, universally rather than necessarily during his career when he was certainly in, in the Senate. I don't know if Bob Dole was as appreciated by people on both sides of the aisle. However, there was certainly more collegiality back in the day than perhaps what you see today. But it's well-deserved recognition coming his way here as the nation honors him. Right. As we're recording this right now, he's he's lying in state in the U.S. Capitol. Um, really the, the highest honor our nation can give to a public servant. And there is, there is no one more deserving than that uh, Bob Dole really, you know, the son of flyover country. Bob Dole, um, if I could, guys, I'll, I'm going to ask you, Jared, to put a link uh, on this podcast, if you don't mind. I About five or six years ago, a um, family trip to Washington, D.C., and so I took my two sons to the World War II Memorial. My wife and I took them there to the World War II Memorial, and fortunate enough uh, that Bob Dole was there that day, as he, is, as he was, I should say, many days to greet uh, Honor Flight members and or other World War II veterans. And I had interviewed Bob Dole a few times over the years in my role as a TV and radio reporter, but this was a much different situation. And I just said, honored to see you again and, and to meet you and to introduce him to my children. And I said, hey, while we're here, could you just tell them what they should be looking for at the memorial? So Bob Dole then just looked at my, my the young son's eyes, held their hand with his one hand that worked, his left hand, and just told him to look at the stars and how each of them represents 
and think about your grandfathers and, and their fathers and what they gave for our country. And it was just it's one of those situations where obviously it was it was, it was his wheelhouse. But the fact that my children at a very young age were just mesmerized by this man, I, I, I have great photographs then of the two of them or the three of them just kind of bonding. So it's, I appreciated his I had a very personal message. And if I could, guys, I was going to share with you. Um, I worked in radio and TV in Louisville and back in 1996 when Bob Dole was the presumptive nominee and had just actually resigned from the Senate to devote his uh, himself full time and show how serious he was about winning the presidency rather than defaulting back to uh, his, his role there in the Senate. He appeared in Jefferson Square Park in downtown Louisville and uh, gave a campaign speech about 20 minutes or so. And a, a quick bite here that I think is relevant to some of our political conversation today. Here's Bob Dole. Bob Dole wants to bring people together. If I was able to do anything in the United States Senate, I was able to bring people together. In my own party, in both parties, and sometimes working with the White House, Democrats or Republicans. Now, you can't compromise principle. But Ronald Reagan, you say, if I get 90% of what I want, that might be a pretty good deal. And I'll come back and get the other 10% later. And sometimes that's the way it works. But I want to say this in addition. It's been my belief throughout my lifetime, in the good times and the bad times, and everybody is there at good times, and you've all had bad times, and some may have problems right now. But let me say again, we live in one America, the United States of America. Whether we're white or black, rich or poor, employed or unemployed, disabled or able-bodied, urban or suburban, this is one America. And as long as we understand it's one America, we're going to move ahead in America. And we're going to be a greater nation than we are today. Now, speaking about the, the, last, the, the latter part of that bite first, Jared, is the whole concept of that we're one America, in some regards can almost be regarded by some people as radical, saying, well, we're not. I mean, even that, I think, would be contested in some quarters today. Yeah, I mean, this is this has become such a cliche thing to say about how divided our country is. Um, You know, at times I think we're more divided than I can imagine. At times I think we aren't very divided. But there hasn't been that unifying message necessarily that you've heard from our leaders, right? Um, whether we actually are divided, you know, sometimes the polling shows it, sometimes the polling doesn't show it. But I think with the passing of Bob Dole, Joe, you mentioned that sometimes it takes somebody passing for us to recognize really what they stood for. It was one of the first times in a long time that I've seen elected officials on both sides of the aisle recognizing how important somebody was. It, you know, we have this sort of culture now when, you know, somebody may pass and it's it's time to bring up some of the awful things they did in their life or the, the one wrong thing they said 30 years ago. And you didn't really see that with Bob Dole. And I think it speaks to that sort of unifying message. And again, I think sometimes that lacks a little bit nowadays. Um, and so to hear that is really refreshing and, and hopefully uh, you know, uh, maybe I'm being optimistic, but, you know, when somebody passes and you can bring these sorts of ideas back that they can sort of, you know, reignite some of that hope or, or that sort of energy of unification. I, I really like what you were saying about that, um, that hope. Uh, he, Senator Dole also published an op-ed 
uh, this week in, in USA Today. It was his final op-ed. And he, he talks about his challenges. He talks about what he got right and what he got wrong over his career. Um, but he made very plain that none of this is easy. Um, that's a, the quote. In Congress, it wasn't easy. I think this American experiment isn't easy. And it, it takes more than just uh, bomb throwing from one side or the other. It takes everybody understanding our, our shared core values, you know, working together, even when we disagree, finding where we do agree that 90 percent and, um, you, you know, working toward a higher ideal. And I think if if there's a takeaway from Senator Dole's life and all that he accomplished in 98 years, it's it's a higher ideal uh, when he was in, in military service and public service uh, in his later life. It's a it's a higher ideal and humor. He was also very funny. <laughs> Well, he was funny in a um, in a self-deprecating way, as well as a you had to take. I heard, I heard a clip from him actually on an old NPR interview, and he was talking about how when he was growing up as a young man, he worked at a local pharmacy there in Kansas. And he said, and for whatever reason, it just became it, it was their 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 way of um, communicating with each other was was criticisms was, was basically was putting each other you walked in the door and you just kind of slammed somebody and became sort of like the what they were known for and i here's the thing i grew up kind of thin-skinned and i i mean it, frankly the it, was scott not here but let's, let's, let's talk about him a little bit no i've i've grown to appreciate the way that guys interact and I had I have four sisters and a brother growing up, and we were just kinder to each other than a lot of guys are. <laughs> but anyway, but I I uh, I have now grown to appreciate the fact that oh okay, if you love someone, you give them hell, and that is sort of Bob Dole is, is the whole sense of everything was sort of like a snide aside, um, but it was all with the undercurrent there, and that's the whole thing about when you come into a position of leadership or just of being a person. And you've gone through what he's gone through, the sacrifice, the service, the absolute unquestioned commitment to nation. You have room to criticize. You have room to make fun with those kind of things. You can do that. What happens today is I think there's less of a, back to Jared's original point, less of a commonality or trust in each other that we're all rowing the same direction. So as a result, they're more thin-skinned like me because... You don't know where someone's coming from. I, to me, I, and again, I think there's more room and it's more healthy, like a family, frankly. A family can criticize each other or can kind of have fun with each other because you know at the end of the day, I love you. But if you're in a country where you don't have that second part of the quote of that we're all in this together, despite all these differences, we are all Americans. We're all one America. And I don't know if you ask maybe Kevin, if I'm, I'm guessing, are you, who, who's the younger of the two of you who are here today, but, but you're, you're the same generation. Right. Relatively speaking. Is, yeah. is that fair enough? I'll accept no, it. Anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm, I'm the oldest is all I know <laughs> anyway, is that, but Jared, let me ask you then as the youngest member of our flyover panel right now, if I have to ask you as far as that unity of purpose or that we're all kind of rowing the same direction in our country today, uh, what's, I want you not only to speak for flyover country, but for your your entire generation. How true is that? Yeah, I mean, uh, let me start by saying this too, Joe. You opened by saying that we are kind of different voices in flyover country. I didn't grow up in flyover country. Kevin joked this morning that I was a coastal elite. 
Um, I did. I grew up in, in Massachusetts, but Kentucky has been my home really for my adult life. I, you know, I graduated college and moved here and have been here. So it's really my second home. So some of the kind of thin skin stuff that Joe may, may have, I didn't have that. I was complete opposite. We are rude and self-deprecating and, and mean to our friends growing up. But in there, there was always an acknowledgement that it came from a loving place, right? That there was that there was this sense that even when you insulted somebody or you disagreed or argued or got, you know, in, in a physical fight, right? I grew up with, with two brothers. It always felt like at the end of the day, you still came together. There was some some polling this week from from Axios that, that looked at some of this of, of college students and, and young kids about, you know, whether you would date somebody or shop at somebody's business who came who, who voted for the president of the other party. And we're talking about 70 percent in some cases of Democrats not wanting to go on a date with somebody who presumably voted for President Trump. That really shocks me. I because I think even in my day to day interactions with people in my generation and my friends, friends, look, again, I grew up in, in Massachusetts as a conservative. I did not have many conservative friends or family members who voted Republican. I never felt like they didn't like me or that if we were to, to go on a date or, you know, play on the same sports team, whatever it may be, that any of them ever would have cared about that or ever would have known. Um, and so those sorts of numbers, when we're talking about 70%, look, there's always going to be a small, you know, vocal, loud minority, but 70%, 40% wouldn't shop at a business of somebody who voted for the other president. That that worries me a little bit. And I and I do think this not having this kind of top-down message like we heard from from Bob Dole, that, that does concern me because we, we are one country. Look, you, sh- you shouldn't have to worry about these sorts of things when you're going to a restaurant or going to a sports game or going on a date or whatever. You shouldn't have to worry about that. You should you should care about the, the real values, how somebody wants to raise a family, how somebody feels about money and, you know, those sorts of things, not whether they voted for somebody one time. So it, it does concern me. Um, but again, I, I tend to be kind of optimistic about these things that they can turn quickly, that sometimes... The people involved are, are really who are affecting it. So I, I do hope we can change some of this and it's not we're stuck as a divided country forever. The polls by Generation Lab, Axios polling that you mentioned. And as you pointed out, it was it was really interesting, even though there still are 31 percent of Republicans who college students have said they would not date someone or go out on a date with somebody who voted for Joe Biden in this case. It was 71 percent when you flip the parties and, and went the other direction. But, you know, some of these things have to do with, it's one thing to have a policy disagreement. Some folks think about these as being basically human rights, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's where the issue comes down where it might be different. You know, and, and of course, Donald Trump is a uniquely polarizing character. I don't know if, if this generation is completely defined by that and how long that him being that ultimate wedge will will serve that way or i mean in other words are we are we destined to continue this even after the trump era ends whatever that is or is this something that um you know that will that will pass i think there have been many great moments of american unity just like there have been moments of division so i i will throw my lot in with jared's optimism that i i don't think this is this is forever go on another uh, yeah. What's that? 
Go on more dates, people. <laughs> Go on more dates. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I never, I, I, I can't think that I ever thought about. I certainly guess maybe I don't know. I, that's a, that's a long time ago in a galaxy I, far I, away. So maybe we'll talk about that. Trying to think when I first yeah. found out my wife's political preferences, <laughs> it definitely wasn't the first date, but. <laughs> Well, it is interesting how you meet people, though, too. You meet them, you know, if you're in college, it's one thing. It might be, you know, just socializing. Mm -hmm. Some people meet through church. Some people meet through family or other, you know, all depends if you're living in a rural or an urban area, too, in terms of just how many people that are out there, that kind of thing. It's just a different way of looking at it. Let me ask you uh, about the first part of the Bob Dole quote that I played a moment ago when he was talking about the 90 percent Ronald Reagan allusion to basically you, you do what you can to get what you can. And you try to get the rest of it later, meaning you a willingness to compromise. And uh, I'll start with you again, Jared, in terms of where we are. It seems to me that there's a there's a good comparison here looking at Bob Dole as the at that point when he said that quote, he had just left the this, this Senate Republican leader position. And you have a And of course, at the time, think about it. This was two years removed from the um, Newt Gingrich revolution. And the contract with America and a, a very much of a different way of governing our approach to these things than than um, than the Senate does. And now you have Kevin McCarthy on the House side for Republicans and Mitch McConnell on the on the Senate side with a some some disagreements this week about the best way to go about this. What what lessons or uh, or comparisons do you draw between that quote and what we're going through today? Yeah, I mean, there's a different, a couple different sort of governing styles you see sometimes. Um, I worked in the policy world for a little bit, and, and you know, we used to talk about kind of incrementalism, right? If you, I, I used to tell people, anytime you can kind of go and and take a piece away to get your sculpture looking more like what you want your sculpture to look like, you do it, right? You you don't pass up that opportunity to take out that piece to make uh, to get closer to what you want. Um, but the sort of you know take ninety. It, it, to leave the 10, you know, I think sometimes it depends on what that 10% is. Uh, sometimes it's, it's a reasonable 10%. I think there's concerns nowadays more that that, uh, you know, if you're a Republican, that, that 10% used to be a moderate 10% and now it's a kind of radical 10%. And so that, that kind of take 90 and leave 10, I think, uh, you know, it, it's, it depends sometimes on the situation um, and then you have to you have your more kind of pragmatic approach to, to things. Right. Um, that if, if we keep fighting over, uh, you know, non solutions that we can never get to the solutions. Right. You, you see this sometimes with infighting or uh, some of the situations we're seeing now, whether it be like things like the debt ceiling or, um, you know, NDAA. Right. Things that tend to just sort of happen every year. And if we really want to get to immigration or the border or tax reform, those sorts of things, we have to do these, right? And that's sort of the pragmatic approach. Like, look, it's not perfect, but if we don't do these, we can't, you can't pass immigration reform if the government shut down, right? You, you, we can't have tax reform if government is shut down. Uh, and so that I think is a, a realistic and pragmatic and sometimes, of course, the right approach too. Um, so it's, it's kind of different, different governing styles uh, that tend to compete sometimes. Um, and, and then, you know, mixed up in all of this is the people who truly don't care, aren't there to to represent anybody. They don't have policy positions. They just want to be kind of distractors and uh, muck up the situation. Uh, and so those people aren't really worth listening to on, on anything particularly. So. 
So, Kevin, it's it's one thing to talk about governing and what that means as far as the difference in governing styles and what that means from a, as a practical matter of getting things done. But looming over all of this is the next election, no matter what year it is. And now you have this situation, right? And then, right. of course, the midterms that we think we, we, we've been talking about the midterms since, you know, I think since Inauguration Day. And it's a situation now where this this does loom pretty large. I can see the Supreme Court looming pretty large as well yeah. over the midterms and whatever they do here in probably in June. You kind of to drop that in the middle of all of everything else, uh, that 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 tinderbox. But but where does this where does this divide leave the uh, leave the Republican? I guess both parties, though, leading into the uh, midterm election. Well, I think, you know, it's in Republicans best interest to make the midterm a referendum election. How how, how is Joe Biden affecting your life? Is he delivering on his promises? And I think um Republicans will will make the argument that he is not, and that we are worse off, and uh, it'll it'll be, lead to a change in pe- how people vote at the ballot box. I don't know if it is enough to completely block out anything getting done. I mean, I I think that there are usually in in Washington enough um, people interested in making uh, a difference over making a point that it may not get done right away, but Things that need to get done can, can still get done. I think a perfect example, um, in 2020, March, a very contentious presidential year, the CARES Act gets passed. There was a national emergency. Congress came together, pushed everything aside, addressed a real problem. So I think even in the hottest circumstances, things can happen um, and politics will, will still be there to come back to. That's Kevin Grout. Jerry Crawford's here. I'm Joe Arnold. You're listening to the uh, Flyover Country podcast with Scott Jennings. Scott is not with us today. Scott's also, fine. Also important to note that Kaylee's not here either. They're both fine. Oh, you know something? I, I, sh- I should have mentioned Kaylee. I apologize for that. Yes, Kaylee, we are thinking about you too. But uh, this gave us a, an opportunity with the microphones available to, to listen to the, the insights of, of one Mr. Jared Crawford, who typically is pointing his finger and telling who to talk when, and and now you're a, a capable participant in our conversation here. Uh, but the ideological purity, guys, before we you know move on to the next thing here, is my other question here, and all, all of this, and and it seems to me that both parties are, you know, are are fairly have these tests that are in place, and we're talking, of course, talking right now as well about oh redistricting going on and how these districts are drawn in the first place. I I don't see anything happening anytime soon that's going to bring people together i mean isn't everything just being constructed in such a way as to is continue for us to diverge and have these radically different ideas about the way the country should be run yeah i mean i think sometimes it's your perceptions on the issue too Uh, you know i know people or i see people who who are very upset about gerrymandering and they haven't even seen what the districts are going to look like They've already sort of committed to believing that it's racist or, you know, that this is an absolute disaster of how these lines have been drawn and the lines haven't even been drawn yet, you know? Uh, and so I think sometimes it's your, your perceptions on the issue. Um, look, gerrymandering is obviously one of these issues that is incredibly important, right? And, and we should be, you know, stalwarts of making sure that that process is done correctly 
uh, and that, you know, we don't have issues with it. Um, but, you know, again, I think sometimes it's your perception, sometimes maybe the way you consume media or something like that, uh, you know, no matter what the lines are drawn, you know, say here in Kentucky, somebody might say, well, the Democrats drew them in their favor, you know, when they had control. And so we're going to do it. And, you know, I do think sometimes it's it depends on who you listen to, how you sort of look at situations. Um, but, you know, is there something to, to maybe look forward to, uh, you know, coming sort of to, to bring us together. I think there's, there's always some of those concerns or some of those issues, uh, you know, hopefully schooling can be one of these issues. I think some of those kind of um, radical voices have been pushed aside and, and people are really s- starting to, to come together to care about kids uh, who have had tremendous learning loss in the last year. And so I see schooling as one of these issues, but um, yeah, I mean, there's always going to be some of those that, that kind of gin people up. It's one thing to get people in unanimity as far as the concept of children being in school. But, of course, the battle still exists about what they're going to be taught. Yeah. I mean, right. critical, I, critical they're they're screaming theory. at school board meetings. I think there's plenty of division there right now. Yeah. I mean, I think some of those voices have been pushed aside, though. And you, you're even seeing a, a significant amount of state and local school boards leaving the national school boards because that that sort of top down rhetoric on keeping schools closed. Uh, and then things around curriculum, critical race theory being obviously the most kind of contentious one. Um, I, I see some of those voices being silenced and kind of pushed aside, whether it be these local school boards leaving um, or not. And, you know, and so I, I'm optimistic about schooling. I do think I see more of a consensus around those that issue, um, which is going to be a hot button issue into this next year. But um, yeah, again, <laughs> sometimes it's your perception or, or some of the things you see, of course. Uh, it will never not be, there will never not be some controversy with, with schooling. Let me ask you guys about your view of moving on to the, to the economy. And it's, and sometimes it's, it's, you know, it's, there was, there was the old Mark Twain, you know, there are lies, damn lies and statistics in terms of how we choose to, to interpret or judge you know, the performance of, of the economy, for instance, there's jobless numbers, which are at the lowest number, maybe in 40 years, people who are filing for new unemployment claims. Then there's people who are deciding to be in the workforce. And, you know, certainly there's been more numbers out. October numbers came in this past week and it's slowing down the number of people who are leaving the workforce. But I think you still had maybe more than, um, I guess so far, maybe uh, 4.16 million people I'm looking at as far as speaking of lies, damn lies and statistics. I have 4.16 million people in total walking away from their employer in October. Uh, Transportation, warehousing, utilities, finance, insurance industries are leading the way in that regard. So looking at all this, so economy, you have jobless numbers as far as people, people filing for unemployment way down. People leaving the workforce, though. I guess voluntarily they're fed up or whatever the case is, or some folks might say lack of childcare or fill in the blank with what's going on with COVID. You can't help that. But at the same time, you have inflation reaching their highest number in 40 years too. And the prospect of interest rates going up and people like me are old enough to remember when we had big interest rates. It's been a long time since those were, you know, really a factor in that regard. Anyway. So how do you, Jared, as the, uh, a lot of your economic background, how do you, what is the best metric here, if anything, or is it just how people feel? 
Yeah, so I, dare I punt sort of on this question. I used to think and, and still do think that labor force participation is by far the most important number, right? The the percentage of your working age adults who are in the workforce is a critically important number. Um, one of the ones that always gets point to, pointed to that I always think is not useless, uh, but not as much use as people think is the unemployment rate, because that only counts people who are, you know, searching for work, right? And so even when your unemployment rate is low, your workforce participation rate can still be low. You just have a bunch of people sitting around doing nothing, not even trying to get back in the workforce. So the number of employed people in your workforce, uh, which Kentucky just a few years ago hit record highs, the most people ever employed, period, right? Um, I've always thought labor force participation rate was the most critically important number. But all the things you mentioned, Joe, uh, child care. We know women have left the workforce and a significant amount of them um, almost certainly don't intend to return, uh, which is not necessarily a net negative either. The, the sort of child rearing that, that will happen and, and child development that will happen is a is absolutely a positive there. And so I think it's going to take a while till we can really understand where America's economy is at. Uh, before we got on here, me and Kevin were talking about the quit rate. The quit rate is typically one that's uh, a high quit rate shows a healthy economy. People are leaving and going for higher paying jobs. And so there's a lot of weird things going on. And then you take all of that and add inflation. And I mean, good luck to the PhD economists to try to figure any of this out. So that was a long-winded answer of me saying, I, I don't know. I don't know that there's a single metric. Even, I mean, I've looked at things like used cars prices in the last year, which used to be a, a strong metric for the health of the economy. That's all over the place. Um, so it's it's tough to, to point to one thing and gauge. Uh, of course, we still need more people getting back to work. But I mean, even some of the unemployment benefits have started to run out. So it, it's it's tough to really point to one or even know where we're at. But I think most people will bring the economy much more personally. You know, unemployment rate is one thing, but it's how much am I paying to fill up my car with gas? How much am I paying at the grocery store if I'm able to find things at the grocery store? You know, everyone is worried now. My mother-in-law has been shopping for Christmas for two months now because she is worried that she will not be able to get things for Christmas. I think those are the real human interactions with the economy that, um, uh, while you're right, economists will be able to predict those big macro things. Uh, when it comes to the feel of how our country is doing, I think those impact the, the everyday life more. Yeah. And, and to add to that, Kevin, too, it, it points last year, savings for Americans were at an all-time high. Uh, much of that had to do with the fact that a lot of people got checks mailed to them. Um, but, you know, they weren't commuting to work. That saved on gas costs. They weren't buying lunch out every day. That saved them some money. So at, at points last year, Americans' savings were at the highest. This year, coming up to the, the holiday season, um, credit card uh, debt is at the highest it's been in a long time, too. Right. And so it's this it's this strange where some people in the last year who could adapt and work from home and save and maybe get a raise and their company didn't take a hit. They're doing OK. The people who got laid off and re-entered the workforce six months ago at the same pay, uh, at the same wage, are now dealing with higher gas prices, higher grocery prices, and and energy prices. Right, your heating bill is going to be higher this year, and so the the overall economy in terms of you know how you know the the 
generic metrics there is tough. But I, I do think you're right that that there's a lot of average Americans who still don't feel much better off from when we're, you know, from 18 months ago or whatever. You know, there's a variety of things that happened as a result that have happened and will happen as a result of COVID-19 and the pandemic and restrictions. Uh, certainly uh, class A office space in a number of, of, of cities is going to be depressed because there's less of a need for people to show up in person. Uh, the a concept already existed going into the pandemic among, and it's a cliche among, if you want to say millennials or uh, Gen Z or whatever you want to say the next generation is, of people who take jobs not because of what they pay, but because whether or not they believe in them or not, as far as a value-oriented uh, profession. And in other words, that being much more discriminatory, uh, disc- discriminating in in approaching, you know, what the purpose of my life is or, or of my 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 employable years. And then I think about this a little bit. It's a very dangerous concept to bring up, especially late in the show, this podcast today, and perhaps this misses a springboard for when Kaylee comes back next week. And that's this is something I, I was thinking about this morning, is that, you know, I'm I was born in mid sixties, so I don't really remember it, but it was all happening at the same time was the you know, the feminine mystique in, you know, Betty Friedan's book and Gloria Steinem and the and the and women in the workforce, basically. And this is a of course is a, a long pent up demand for women to have equal opportunity in the workforce as they should, and an opportunity to to fulfill their dreams as well as any man. But it seems to me that's possible that just as COVID nineteen has made these other sort of of reset buttons in business and made people experiment with ways of doing business that they wouldn't have tried otherwise without being forced into it. You suddenly have a lot of people out there who have been at home and have been with their kids and have experimented in terms of saying, hmm, I wouldn't have left my job, you know, uh, voluntarily, but because I lost my job with the situation and we did okay, I don't really, and maybe it's possible to do this on a sole income or on a part-time income plus a full-time. It seems to me that part of this, and I'm, I don't know, I have no data to back this up. I'm just wondering out loud if, if, if part of this is, is that, that COVID sort of pressed the reset button on having options in the same way as having options or having flexibility to say, I don't want to go to work today. I want to appear virtually rather than, and I want to sit on my couch in my pajamas and do my work rather than show up in person. I, I do think everything's gotten a lot more flexible and there are more options. And it seems like employers are now willing to offer that because, you know, the, the situation demanded it. Um, and we'll see if that, if that continues or if people decide they need, they need their workers back in the office. I am not so sure it's as uh, hunky dory as, as you made it out. Um, I mean, Jared, Jared said before that there are, are fewer women in the workforce. And I think it's so many because schools were closed. Someone needed to be at home with the kid uh, or somebody needed to teach their kids school. And I mean, maybe there will be some people who can make that happy decision for themselves and their family. And I fully support that Joe, but I think a lot of it is uh, the situation demanded it and it might've, you know, been a real problem. And that's why get kids back to school let let people make their own choices in their lives. 
No, I don't. And and as far as I don't, I I didn't think it was a hunky dory or a great situation. My point being is, is that until you're forced into uh, seeing the way a a different way of doing it, you you would never even entertain it. It still probably doesn't work for most people, but for some, especially frankly, back to the other point about schools and how kids are being taught and things like this, saying if I want more control over my family and my children, and you know, maybe it's worth making the sacrifice. I don't know. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing necessarily. I'm just, I'm wondering to what extent, what, how women's participation in the workforce will be affected long-term. Let's come back in about 25 years, three of us, we'll talk about this again and we'll see what effect all this had. Yeah. I, Joe, you make an interesting, interesting point there about this sort of like, I've, I've sort of called it like a forced reset of the economy. Um, yeah. You know, uh, we think of women being the, the taking care of the home and the children, you know, and that sort of Don Draper, Betty, like, like that's the mad men days. Right. And then in the last 20, 30 years, women have been the significant growth in the workforce. And they took a lot of these hospitality jobs that were cut or lost, right? If a, if a uh, restaurant closed, there was no waitress, like there was no waitress jobs. And so a lot of them were forced, as Kevin said, to, to go home, whether it be through loss of job or to take care of kids or, you know, any of those sorts of things. But a lot of those women, and I'm, I'm not attempting to speak for women here, uh, let's just make Please that do. clear first. Um, but the data tends to suggest that a lot of them are happier doing that, right? And and I'm not making that as a, a judgment call in anybody's life. Back to the dating things. These are the kind of things that matter when you're dating and thinking about marrying somebody, though, right? About child rearing and whether both of you will work or one of you will be, you know, a stay-at-home parent. My mom was a stay-at-home parent. My dad, you know, worked full-time. And, and so, you know, it obviously still happens, but it was this kind of forced reset and now as we kind of come out of this, which I feel like we've been saying for a year now, but um, as we you know transition back and people start to think about the post COVID world, potentially, you know, it can't, you know, didn't maybe, and again, this is kind of the, the standard hypothetical, but mom came home to, to run the, the homeschool or whatever, and maybe dad got a, a pay raise last year. And so things are okay. You know, you don't have to pay for childcare. You don't have to pay for some of that transportation or whatever it may be and things are okay now that's one less adult and you know in some cases maybe an adult with a bachelor's degree or a master's degree right i mean right some some really high quality workers leaving the workforce uh and it's going to be interesting to see how that impacts growth i mean we coming out of this felt like the worker shortage was short term if there's a lot of moms who prefer to be at home as opposed to waitressing four or five nights a week, they're going to do that. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see how that turns out in the long term. I think my, my, my closing comment on this, and then we'll we'll toss it to Kaylee in a week from now, yeah. is that the whole concept of this being a, a legitimate choice, I think is my question here. In other words, it's one thing to say that you've, you've re- removed the impediments for women to have equal treatment in the workforce. It's something else is to say, because of that, every person, regardless of sex, is expected to have a full-time job. And, and if you don't, you're somehow less of a, a, a parent or less of an adult. And I think there are plenty of people who have realized through this experience, this forced reset, that, oh, maybe it's okay. 
maybe it is worthwhile. Maybe this is a situation where I wouldn't have tried it if not being forced into it. But because I was given this experiment, I think I'm going to stick with it for a while. On that note, Jared Crawford, Kevin Grout, I'm Joe Arnold. Thanks to Scott Jennings for uh, not being available today to allow us to talk a lot longer. Uh, be sure to check out the comments. And uh, Jared, it, we'll, we can remind folks that they should uh, they can leave voicemails Absolutely. in what way? Yep. So if you go to the at, fly, at the flyover pod on Twitter, you'll find it there. It's through a program called SpeakPipe. So if you go to speakpipe.com slash the flyover pod, you can find it there too. But on all of our social media, and of course, rate us five stars, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. Looking forward to the hate mail and voicemails from every woman in uh, North America and flyover country. Looking forward to Kaylee next week giving me uh, the once over. And in the meantime, thanks for listening to the flyover country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help us keep making the content that you love. To find my latest television hits, columns, and other commentary, go to scottjenningsky.com. And you can also find me at Scott Jennings KY on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seat backs and folding trays are in their full upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for landing and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings.